Uh, We are back in our series on Matthew. Um, We have taken a whole number of weeks to get to chapter 21. And uh, the way all the the Gospels are structured is there's a lot of stories, etc., etc., and there's a lot of time, like three years, and then it gets to the final week of Jesus' life, and all the Gospels slow down completely. Um, The the final week of Jesus' life in the Gospels either take up half or at least a third of each Gospel. And that's, that's important for us to note because the gospel writers are showing us through their volume what is the most significant and most crucial reality in all of human existence, the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. And so Matthew chapter 21 through to 28 begins Matthew's section, a third of his gospel spent on just seven days um, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the final week of his life. We're going to spend a whole lot of weeks going through these seven chapters. We're going to go through it quite slowly over various different topics. There's, there's a lot that goes on in this final week. It's a jam-packed week, and there's a lot of different things. We're going to move around a little bit through these chapters because Easter is coming up. In fact, today is the first Sunday of Lent, if you follow the old church calendar, uh, which means that we're, we're about 40 days out from Easter. So already... It's like excited. Easter is my favorite time of year, so I'm excited, and I like to remember uh, that time. And so, as we start Matthew up again, we're coming into just you know six weeks as we prepare for Easter, and we're going to be in Jerusalem in that final week with Jesus for the next six weeks, which will be really really cool. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 22. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, 
Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the, wig tree, well, the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you may bless the preaching and reading of your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm not sure if you know the strict definition of an oxymoron, but as I was studying through this passage this week, the thing that stood out to me the most from this passage was it was oxymoronic. An oxymoron is when two words are put together that seem contradictory. They, they seem like they can't go together. Bitter sweet. Jumbo shrimp. Only choice. Civil war. Paper towel. Uh, alone together. Deafening silence. Definite, maybe. <laughs> Found missing. <laughs> One man band. Plastic glasses. And a working vacation. Um, you, you get the point. You put them together and they don't seem to work. It doesn't seem to fit in our head. But actually, in context, you know what they all mean. Today, we're painted a picture or presented a picture of Jesus which seems oxymoronic, almost contradictory. And I think it's the picture that Matthew paints, and he actually puts two to three days worth of information all in one section without telling us it's different days and nights and things like that. And I think the picture that Matthew's trying to paint is this, humble authority. Humble authority. Two words that don't seem to go together all too often or actually lived out. It might be an ideal that we want for leaders and people to be humble with their authority, but more often than not, it doesn't go together. More often than not, we have people that are humble that just let everyone else kind of do their thing and they don't press in and they don't take charge. Or we have people that are authoritative, as we're seeing in the world right now, taking charge, leading, making things happen, even to disastrous consequences. Humble authority. And what we're going to see today is how does Jesus have this and what is meant to be our response? Matthew's trying to paint a picture. He's put all this together in two, in one little section so that we can see this picture of who Jesus is. But it's not just a picture of who Jesus is for theology's sake or doctrine's sake or just painting a picture. No, the whole point of this passage is that we would respond appropriately to this humble authority. 
So two points, simple points for us today. Seeing his humble authority and responding to his humble authority. Let's jump in and and walk through the text and just enter the story a little bit. Point number one, seeing his humble authority. As we've gone through the book of Matthew, chapters 1 through 20, we have had a slow and steady march towards this very moment. Matthew hasn't taken us to Jerusalem at all in his gospel, although Jesus has been there. He's deliberately left it out of his account because he's building to this very moment, this climactic moment when Jesus first enters the city of David, Jerusalem, named in our passage as Zion. The great city where the temple is, the great city where the sacrifices are, where the presence of God dwells in the temple. This is the moment, this is the time that we've all been waiting for. Slow and steady has been Jesus, his ministry. Going off for prayer, not hurrying, healing some, leaving others, teaching, trying to get rid of the crowds, keeping his identity a secret. But now, as he heads towards Jerusalem, each of the gospel writers make a decisive shift in this moment. Listen to how Mark records it in Mark chapter 10. You'll see, the one time it seems as if Jesus hurries is when he's on his way to Jerusalem. Mark 10 says this. Look at the word picture, or the, the, the painting he's putting. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem's on a hill. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. So you've got the crowd of disciples, but Jesus is out the front. And what's their response? It's not just like, oh, wow. They were amazed. And those who followed him were afraid. And why were they afraid? Because they knew what was about to come in Jerusalem. They had a sense. Jesus pulls them aside and says in verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after that, three days will rise. You'd think that if Jesus knew all that was about to take place, he'd probably hang at the back, delaying the inevitable. But instead, Mark paints his picture that Jesus is out ahead. Jesus is walking Briskly, Jesus is leading the disciples into the lion's den. Luke 9, 51, uh, he says it like this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, what is Jesus' response? He set his face to go to Jerusalem. In the old versions, it says it set his face like flint. Resolute boldness. Jesus is being pretty relaxed, in a sense, throughout his ministry, but now the time has come. Now he must go to Jerusalem. Now the final work of redemption must take place. And so his resolution is laser focused. All the teaching, all the healing, all the miracles, all the arguments with the religious leaders has led to this moment. In a sense, he's, he's on the precipice. He's, he's teetering over the edge, the culmination of his entire work. And he's ready, in a sense, to dive in like an Olympic diver that needs a perfect 10 in their last dive, and they've got to go for it. They have to look down that barrel and just go. And that's how Jesus is. He steps up to the plane. And as Jesus steps towards Jerusalem, we must remember what he's predicting. Each step 
takes him toward the wrath of God. Each breath of air he breathes in is one of his last. Each word he says is pointing towards his final words when he will cry, it is finished upon the cross. I want us to to feel the weight, feel the drama, and see the resolve of Christ. And even though this is a joyful passage, we've got to sense what is really happening here. But then Matthew records um, for us this picture in verses 1 to 3, which gives us this summary of humble authority. So when they drew near to Jerusalem with all that in mind and came to Bethphage, about you know, eight to 900 meters out from Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives, so about 800 meters above sea level, so he can see Jerusalem, probably you know, it's up, Mount of Olives is up, so there's a valley in between, the Valley of Kidron, and he's looking across to Jerusalem. And Jesus, notice Jesus' change in tone here and how he talks. He's, he's quite authoritative. Look what he says. Go into the village in front of you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. You see this commanding authority that Jesus has. He's telling the future. He's demonstrating his control over the situation. And the crucial fact that we need to understand as we come towards the final week of Jesus' life and we draw near to his death is that you need to see this. Nothing happens to Jesus. Nothing happens to Jesus. Everything is according to his plan. Jesus is not passive. Jesus is not stumbling into problems and trouble. No, everything is happening according to the foreknowledge and plan of God the Father. He isn't responding. He's in control. He is the authority. He is the boss. He is the king. And even down to this detail of this donkey and its cult, you know, the, 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 the child of a donkey, he's planned this event. He's orchestrated this event for a specific reason. And look at how he describes himself. He's been keeping his messiahship, his lordship, in somewhat secret, but now he sends his disciples on ahead, and what does he say? The Lord needs them. There's only two people that that could refer to, Caesar or Yahweh. For Hebrew people, they called God Yahweh, Lord. That was the special title. For Roman people, they called Caesar Lord. And so for Jesus to say, the Lord needs them, is a statement of absolute authority. Putting himself above Caesar and equal with God the Father. The Lord needs them. He's in control. He's planning. He's orchestrating. Nothing is happening to him. And Matthew notes that this scene isn't just like a cool, you know, party trick. Hey, look, you're going to see a donkey. Jesus plans this out specifically to fulfill prophecy. A prophecy in the the book of Zechariah, Matthew 21 verse 5, or 21 verse 4 says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, which is actually from Isaiah 62, 11, and Zion is Jerusalem, and look at what, look at what this little, like, because this didn't happen in the moment. This is Matthew reflecting on afterwards. Look at what Matthew's putting in so that we will see 
Behold, what? Your king is coming to you. No, your king is coming. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Your king is coming. Humble. Your king is coming to you. The Lord mounted on a donkey. Humble. He's painting a picture that the Messiah is coming, that the fulfillment of all that Israel were hoping for, the liberator, the king, the ruler, what they expected probably to be more like someone coming on a war horse with troops, instead he comes as a humble king on a donkey. Not that impressive, I don't think. I think a, a massive, you know, uh, we, I was down at the football yesterday, the Wanderers, and they, by the way, they know how to do a call to worship. Um, you, you watch that online. They, they gather in this great mob, but as we walked as a mob towards the stadium, the two big police horses arrived. And just, you know, you thought we were powerful, and then suddenly these horses that sit high above, and you're looking up, and we wouldn't have missed them, but the horse was wearing high vis, so we could see the horse, um, just in case we did somehow miss this huge beast. But Jesus doesn't come in on a war horse. He comes in on a donkey. But he's still the king. And that's this oxymoron, this, this contrast that Matthew's painting, this unexpected king. It's not the Messiah that they were expecting, that they wanted necessarily. They probably wanted more, more like a Putin type of king. Come in with the tanks, kick out the Romans, take back the land, depending on which perspective you're coming from. But instead, humble authority. Humble authority. Matthew continues to paint the picture in verses 6 to 9, and we see this played out. Let's have a look. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. That doesn't mean he sat on, like, the donkey and the... That would be awkward. He sat on the coats uh, that was on the, on the colt. And then look what happens. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him... And that followed him, so this is like the Wanderers game last night with the, the mob coming into the stadium. The crowds before him and behind him are shouting. And so, you, you know, they're coming into the time of Passover. So pilgrims from all over the world are coming back to Jerusalem. So there's potentially hundreds, if not thousands of people streaming into Jerusalem for this week to celebrate the great act of redemption of Israel being liberated from Egypt all those years ago. And as they get caught up in the fervor, they see this, this prophecy being fulfilled. They see this king coming on a donkey. The disciples are probably stirring up the crowd like the cheerleaders were yesterday. I don't know if they had flares back then, but maybe there was a flare or two going on. And the crowd is shouting out from Psalm 118 these words that were messianic and all about what the, the, the Israelites were to do when they come to worship. And they start shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now we just hear that and we think, yeah, of course, it's Jesus. Like, of course you would say those things. But look at what they're saying about this guy on a donkey. Hosanna to the son of David. They're somewhat, somehow picturing him as the fulfillment of King David. That the line of David would one day have a forever ruler. And they're saying, maybe this guy's it. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They pronounce a worship and a blessing over Jesus. And then they say, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna just means to praise to God. And they're saying, in the highest. So this is a great moment of worship and exaltation. There's no sort of like, Hosanna in the highest. <laughs> they're, they're screaming out. They're shouting out. They're throwing cloaks down. There's palm fronds going down. They're dancing. Probably, you know, I don't know. You know, Israel style, coming in, making some noises, etc., as they make their way into Jerusalem. Would have been quite a scene. A couple hundred meters of them walking in, and then this is what happens. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Uh, that word there means troubled. It's the same word that's used when the Magi come to King Herod's court and tell them that the king's been born. It says all of Israel was troubled. Uh, not like they weren't stirred up like, oh, this is sick. They're like, oh, no, this means this is danger. A king coming into Roman-occupied territory, when everyone's saying this is the Lord, that's a direct challenge to Caesar. That could be a disruption. And what happens when there's a disruption? The Romans come in and they just kill people. The best way to stamp out you know, a crowd and a mob is through war horses and swords, and the Romans were good at that. So Israel's troubled. The leaders are troubled. And they were saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Which is like saying, you know, this is, this is the king uh, from Punchbowl or something like that. You're like, Nazareth? That's, that's nowhere very impressive. Sorry, Punchbowl. <laughs> is Idy here? We love Punchbowl, but this is the prophet Jesus. Now, we're not sure exactly if they were referring back to the, the prophecy that Moses, or that the Lord gave to Moses, that one day God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Um, it is to him you shall listen. Or if they're just giving a general designation, he's a prophet-like figure. He does miracles, healings, teachings. He's here to restore. Um, obviously, we know that Jesus is more than a prophet. Uh, Islam is wrong. Uh, they believe in Jesus. If you talk to any Islamic person, or if you're Islamic here today, believe in Jesus. Jesus was a good guy. He was a good teacher. He was, he was a prophet. But he's far more than a prophet. Matthew doesn't want us to leave here thinking, he's just a prophet. No, no, he's, he's the humble authority. He's the king. And so Matthew, again, shows us his authority. So he's on a donkey, got the crowds, there's mixed together. And actually, we learn in Mark's gospel that Jesus comes into the temple and surveys it and goes home. And then the next day is the clearing of the temple. Read in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple. Now, when you think temple, don't think like Tara Junior School Hall <laughs> or Iron Street Chapel. The, 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 the temple that Herod built was the largest structure in the ancient world, a thousand feet wide, a uh, thousand foot long, 30 football fields. Okay, this is absolutely huge. And what does Jesus do when he enters this temple, the place of worship, the place where all the Passover lambs are going to be sacrificed? Well, it's, it's a strange picture for us who we sort of don't know what to do with Jesus in this. He entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Uh, in John's gospel, we learn that he does it with a whip. You know, 
I don't know how many pictures or portraits of Jesus we have <laughs> with a whip, but this is Indiana Jones, Jesus. He comes in. No, that's blasphemy. Okay. Uh, he comes in, and he's got the whip, and he's driving out the people. He's turning over tables, and it's, it's a commotion. It's a scene. It's, again, it's a display of his authority. Remember, this is his house. This is his temple. This is the temple that was designed and architected by God and himself and the Holy Spirit for the dwelling place of God on earth. And he says to them, quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7 and Isaiah 56, It is written, My house should be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. My house should be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus is coming in to clear out the temple. It's not necessarily wrong that they were buying and selling for the sacrifices. They had to do that. It's where they were doing it. It's the location that they'd brought commerce and profit and trade into the temple, the place where God alone was to be worshipped, the place where people were meant to come to pray and experience God. Instead, they were coming to buy and sell and trade and make a buck. Uh, the, the temple was to be a house of prayer for all the nations, that people could come and experience the presence of God. It'd be like during the middle of the sermon, you're doing deals on the side and you're, you know, Facebook marketplace and you're selling some books while I'm talking. It's that kind of thing. It's like, no, not here, not now, elsewhere. Here is not a place for commerce and trade. Here is not a place for you to network and, and just make community. Here is a place to worship Almighty God to be in his presence, to enjoy his goodness. And when Jesus calls it a den of robbers, he, he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7. And, and in that, God is speaking through the prophet, and the prophet is condemning Israel because they've turned the temple into this place where people aren't coming to be saved. They're coming to show off. They're coming to present their good works, but they're not actually coming to worship in humility and confess their sins. Isaiah 56, 7 says this, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house should be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And it could be that Jesus is denouncing their sacrifices. He's saying, you aren't making real sacrifice here, anticipating the true sacrifice that he's about to make on the cross. So we've got Jesus. Now we've got, boom, authority is coming through. But then Matthew wants to show us his humility again. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Do you know, since the day of David, because um, of a curse of one of the nations against David that they said that we don't even need to defend our city, the blind and the lame will defend it. David said, from this day forth, the blind and the lame shall never be in my palace or in the house of God. And so the blind and the lame were barred from being in the temple. But now Jesus welcomes them in. Jesus is demonstrating this new dawning, this new age where all can come. And so the religious leaders would have cast them out and sent them away as unclean, as unfit and unholy. And you know what Jesus does? And this is what he does for each and every one of us with our various sins and ailments. Instead of sending us away with because we're unholy and unclean, he brings us in and makes us holy and clean. He takes the blind and the lame in the temple and makes them right so they can be there. It's amazing. Like Jesus, and that's what he does for each of us. When we come to Jesus with whatever we've got, 
He doesn't say, well, fix yourself up and then come back. He says, I'll make you well, so now you can be in my presence. That's the whole message of the gospel. That's the good news. And that's Jesus' humility and love to be with the weakest, the vilest, the poor. And that's our hope. And then the story continues. We see the responses of the the leaders. And we're going to look at this more in detail later. But verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, it was such a joy to have the children... um, in the service singing because here jesus doesn't rebuke the singing of the children the children hosanna to the son of david they they join the chorus and the leaders were indignant and they said to jesus do you hear what these are saying i guess supposing like that he was meant to rebuke them like kids kids i'm just a prophet and jesus said to them yes have you never read and he quotes from psalm 8 out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. Which is a remarkable psalm to quote, given that it's all about God the Father, the Creator, if you know Psalm 8 well. And Jesus is saying, yeah, it's, it's right for them to praise me. That's who I am. So we have this picture. The humble, authoritative king coming in. And all these varying responses. And we see that the people that were meant to receive him, the religious establishment, They rejected him. They're not happy with his presence there. And so when Jesus leaves, we see this strange story of the cursing of the fig tree. Uh, And you might have thought, why is that? Why why is that here? It's just a bit mean. Poor old fig tree, um, you know, just hanging out there. It wasn't quite ripe, so Jesus curses it. But the, the reason why Jesus does that, and we'll explain a little bit more later, is it's a picture. It's a sign of a curse on Israel for rejecting him. And again, we see Jesus' absolute authority, even over creation. He can say to a living, organic tree, be cursed, and it will wither. And then, it wasn't in our reading today, but Matthew includes the very next story. I just want to read verse 23 for you. The next day, when he comes back, this is what happens. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority... Are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So you see the picture, right? It's it's clear for us. This is an authoritative, humble king. It's an oxymoron to us. We see his kingliness. He can command, he can heal, he can cast out, he can make blind eyes see. We're so used to that, we can't even... We don't even stop long enough to think that someone was blind and now they could literally see because King Jesus is there. What authority he has and what humility he has that he accepts the children, accepts the blind and the lame. So how are we meant to respond? Demands a response from us. How are we actually meant to respond? Well, that leads us to point number two, responding to his humble authority responding to his humble authority. You would have noticed in the story that Matthew does pay careful attention to the various responses that people have toward Jesus. And indeed, this whole section from 21 all the way up until his death is all about the different responses and how Jesus is received in Jerusalem, story after story, right down to his death. 
The crowds at this point are shouting, Hosanna in the highest. They're, they're stoked. The kids are joining in the chorus. They think, the Messiah's here. This is awesome. The lame are drawn in. The blind are drawn in, and they come to him. But the authorities, they're indignant and frustrated. Eventually, the crowd will turn on Jesus also. And their various responses are important to see, and they're painted for us to see. But today, for us this morning, most critical and most important is how do you respond to Jesus? How are you presently responding to the humble authority of Jesus? It's nice to look at how they did it back then and think, oh, if I was there, I would have been hosannering in the highest. I would have taken my cloak and put it down. But how are you, whether you're a Christian or not, responding to Jesus this past week? We spent all retreat looking at the supremacy of Christ. How much did that impact you this week? How much did it impact me this week for those of us who are on retreat? You see, the Christian faith is not a take-it-or-leave-it religion. Our response matters. Our response to Jesus makes a difference between hope and dismay, flourishing and floundering, life and death, and indeed, heaven and hell. You know, each week on um, Maddie and I try and have a date night together and we often just have it in and we get some takeaway food and try and have a special time together and each week it's sort of like, oh, what will we get this week? You know, will it be Mexican from Guzmani or Indian from um, that place that I can't pronounce? Uh, Chinese, Thai, Italian, Japanese. There's all these different choices and preferences but in the end you kind of you choose one, you eat it. If you don't like it, oh, well, choose another one next week. Don't order it again. Or like various TV shows or things you're going to stream or sport you're going to do or recreational activities. You might like cycling, you might like craft. Cool, it doesn't really matter. But it's not like that with Jesus. We can't take him or leave him without consequence. And so just like the people in these stories, they all had a choice to make in responding to Jesus' humble authority. And so do you and I. And whether we're Christians or not yet Christians, we probably all have some sort of a temptation to fall off the donkey on either side, right? Normally you say fall off the horse, but donkey, you see. Fall off the donkey on either side. On either side of the oxymoron. Some of us love to focus on the humility of Jesus. We love humble Jesus, meek and mild, gentle and lowly. We love him welcoming in the lame and the blind. We love him driving out the attack, you know, the... the, the the people extorting people in the temple. We love that kind of, he cares about the poor. We love that he cares about the oppressed, that he's kind. But we don't really you know, rejoice in his kingship. We like his kindness, but not his kingness. It's all rest, but no rules. It's all grace and no truth. It's all love and no law. He's kind, and we like that. But not really a king, or at least not my king. Or we fall off on the other side of the donkey, and some of us mainly focus on the authority of Jesus. Jesus is king. You can see which side I like. Uh, but not really kind. I mean, who cares about that? Obey or be obliterated. The type of Jesus that you can conjure up from these passages is one that beats you into submission. Cords of whips, that's, you know, you've got that all around your house. It's like, you do this, you must, you should, and you like that. 
It's all commands and rules, restrictions, law, duty, shoulds, musts, but no, not much rest, not much gentleness, not much humility, not much meekness. Humble authority. Which one do you veer toward most? Do you mainly focus on his humility or his authority? As humans, we can't handle the, the contradiction in the two terms, and so we often simplify it, even unwittingly. So where do you fall if you fell somewhere? And why do you think that is? Why do you so love the humility of Jesus? Perhaps you're weary, you're burnt out, you're tired. Perhaps you had overbearing parents or school or religion to you just seemed like rules, rules, rules. And then you heard of grace and you just thought, oh, I love grace. I'm just going to swim in grace. No rules. I just love it. Jesus accepts me for who I am. He loves me for who I am. Well, maybe you fall on the authority side because maybe tempted towards self-righteousness or you think everyone should just get it together and so you love it when Jesus comes with a cord of whips because you're like, yes, finally, someone telling people what to do in this world. You want King Jesus or you want kind Jesus. But as much as we want Jesus to be simple and fit the picture we want, Matthew doesn't leave that for us. We have humble authority. Both and. And Jesus is unique in this. He, he's able to blend humility and authority. He's able to be a kind king, supreme and gentle and lowly. In everything, he's preeminent and he loves the little children. And so we must respond to the fullness of who Jesus is rightly. So what then is the proper response? How should Israel, how should we respond to the humble authority of Jesus? Well, I want to give you another oxymoron, potentially. Joyful submission. Joyful submission. Submission is necessary because Jesus is king. Can't escape it. It's who he knows he is. It's who he's demonstrated he is through his death, resurrection, ascension. One day he will come back to judge the living and the dead. Every one of us will be judged by Jesus. He is the authority. We must submit to him. But not mere submission. Not mere obedience. Not mere yes sir. But joyful submission. And that's where the contradiction and the oxymoron comes in. Because joy and submission don't normally go together in our hearts or in our culture. When the world hears in Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands, it sounds like violence. Even in the church, when we say submit to Jesus, if I say submit to Jesus, there's a sense of unease, like, oh, it doesn't sound loving, it doesn't sound graceful, it doesn't sound right. But is it possible that submission can be joyful? You see, Jesus is the authority, and the proper response is submission. But Jesus doesn't just want submission, he wants joyful submission. Notice how much Matthew pays attention to praise in this section. The crowds in verse 8 spread their cloaks on the road, they cut branches from trees, they cry out in verse 9, Hosanna in the highest. 
in the temple courts, the children, what do they do? They cry out, Hosanna in the highest. When the Pharisees and the leaders come against Jesus and they say, you know, can you hear the kids praising you? He doesn't say, oh yeah, kids, 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 quiet down. No, he says, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So the proper response is to submit to King Jesus, but joyfully, joyful submission. I love how it's explained in Luke 19, 37 to 40. This is how Luke records this whole scene. Listen, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd say to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They shouldn't be praising you. They shouldn't have joy. They shouldn't be dancing. And Jesus answered, pay attention to this. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very stones would cry out. Jesus wants us to know. Matthew wants us to know. Luke wants us to know. The proper response to Jesus is joyful submission. Indifference is not an option. Half-hearted, weak praise is not an option if Jesus is who he is painted to be. And Jesus says that the very mountains would cry out, that if, if no one was praising him, because that's what all creation was designed for, then the very creation itself would start the chorus. Joy for us isn't optional. Neither is submission. And I'm so grateful that as a church, we are, and we model this, I believe. Retreat was a great example of joyful worship and praise. Uh, And you demonstrate this so loudly every time we sing uh, in life groups and in the way that you gather for various ministries and meetings. Um, I think this is a mark of who we are as a church. And so I want to encourage you that you are a joyfully submissive church, that you get this principle. But I don't want us to just be like, yeah, we're we're good at this. This is uh, joy. That's kind of what we do. I want us to grow in it. I want us to go further into it. I want us to get a bit, you know, wanderers, mob coming into the, you know, the temple that is Parramatta Stadium with all that joy because of who Jesus is. But here's the reality. We're not going to celebrate Jesus' authority if you're still trying to be the authority between you and God. If you want to dictate to God how you will serve him, how much you will give, how much you will do, then joy is not really going to well up. You're going to bristle. It's going to be like a, like a thorn, like a rash, like anything. It's going to be, oh, it's not going to work. But if you humble yourself before the authoritative king and realize that he's the sovereign one, that he's in control, then the joy will start to come. So how joyful... I don't know, a scale of 1 to 10, is your worship of Jesus. Would you be in that crowd cheering out, Hosanna in the highest? Or would you be sort of at the very peripherals going, yeah, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. You know, a little clap. (laughs) Compare it to the joy in other spheres of your life. What do you love the most? What would get you cheering and dancing. Perhaps it's sport or food or various hobbies or craft or a TV show or Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or travel or success. 
Does your joyful submission to Jesus compare? Or alone in your life, is there a level and a heightenedness of joy that is incomparable to anything else you experience? Passion and praise reserved for Jesus alone. The, the passion and praise that Jesus alone deserves. It's not just joy, it's submission. Some of us lack joy, some of us lack submission. It's not just about enjoying Jesus, like, oh, we're in the praise, yes, and then we just go do whatever we want. True worship of Jesus involves all of life, every part of us being submitted to him. Sadly, the crowds praised Jesus, Hosanna in the highest, and then seven days later cried out, crucify him. It's possible to be full of praise and seeming joy, but unless you submit to Jesus and say, you are king, you are my hope, you are my salvation, you are my rock, everything is in you, you tell me what to do, you tell me where to go, you tell me who to be, you tell me how much I should serve, unless you do that, your praise can turn into cursing. So the first question is, how much joy do you have? The second application question is, are you submitted to Jesus in every area of your life? Is there something you're holding back? Is there some area where you're like, Jesus, you can be Lord, just not over this? The proper response is joyful submission in everything to this humble and authoritative king. And just a a final application I I want to give to to fathers and husbands, leaders potentially. We see in Jesus an example of how to lead well. We see in Jesus this beautiful mix of authority, go and get the donkey, do this, you know, turn over tables when you need to, get the whip out when you need to. No, okay, you get my point. Um, Don't get the whip out. But figuratively speaking... And humility. And as fathers and as husbands and as leaders, we ought to be like our king in this respect as well. Authority. Especially husbands and fathers in the home. We are the authority of our homes, but the way we exercise it is humility. Our tendency can be all humility, okay, whatever you want, and no authority. Or all authority and no humility. Look to Jesus to find how to put them together. Because he's the model of the perfect leader. So, Jesus' humble authority demands our joyful submission in all of life. At the proper response to this picture of Jesus, and indeed the whole gospel, is joyful submission. And if you're lacking any of the joy or any of the submission, we need to spend more time in the next seven days as we approach the cross. Because how can we not well up with joy and how can we not lay down in submission for the one who traveled into Jerusalem on a donkey only to be delivered over to the rulers for your sin and my sin? How can we not have joy and submission when he was taken up onto the cross, beaten, stripped and crucified, nails piercing his hands, a spear piercing his side so that the blood that flowed out of him could be counted as payment for the wrongs that you and I had done? How can we not have joy and submission when we know that he is the one that has paid it in full? And how can we not have joyful submission to the one who rose again from the dead, 
defeating death, defeating the curse, and the promise of new and everlasting life. How can we not have joy and submission knowing that Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and one day will come again on the clouds as we sang to return and judge the earth and bring us into that new eternal life. When we see Jesus for who he really is, it ought to help us and soften our hearts that we would respond with joy and submission. But there's a warning in this passage. If we do not respond rightly, and if instead of responding joyfully and submitting to Jesus, you reject him or ignore him or treat him on the peripheries, then this picture of the, the cursed fig tree stands as a warning and a curse to you. Jesus cursed that fig tree to show the disciples that he was cursing Israel and the religious establishment, that God's covenant with them was over, a new covenant was coming. That if you do not bear fruit in keeping with repentance, if you do not have the fruit of joy and submission, you are on a dangerous side of Jesus' authority. And so God is warning you today to come to Jesus and bow the knee before him and receive his grace and mercy that you would not be cursed like that fig tree was on the day of judgment. So friends... Let this awesome story today be a picture and a reminder of who Jesus really is. The humble and authoritative one. And let it inform you how to respond appropriately, not just when we sing now, and we should sing joyfully, but when we leave and we go to lunch and when you go to work and when you're you know, halfway through an Excel database or you're teaching or you're at home and you're cleaning or you're doing work anywhere, you're driving... Joyful submission, joyful submission, humble authority. Those two words, let the oxymoron stay in your head all week and may it help you to respond rightly. Let us pray. Friends, I pray, uh, Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us, help us to respond rightly. Uh, my heart is often so cold and so often I'm prone to wander, prone to leave you, prone to be excited by other things, prone to want to be the boss, prone to want to rule instead of you. Instead, Lord, would you change our hearts? Would you warm us up now by your Holy Spirit, even in this moment now to surrender again, to repent of sins and to come before you as the humble and authoritative King? We thank you for sending Jesus, our Savior. How can we thank you enough, O oh Lord? Help us to live for him this week and not ourselves. Prepare us in this season for Easter. Help us to live a life worthy of the gospel. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.